it's good to be with all of you this morning. I hope you are all doing well. Good to be with the online community as well. Thank you for participating in the service today. Today I'm going to talk about a topic that you probably aren't going to expect me to talk about. I want to talk about mind reading today. That's right, I want to talk about mind reading. Some of you might be surprised thinking, why are you talking about mind reading? That's that's something that we shouldn't do. That's, we don't do that in the church. Isn't that part of the occult? That isn't, isn't that something hidden that we don't do? The truth is, some of us and a lot of us engage in some mind-reading practices, sometimes unintentionally without even knowing it. But see, usually we sanitize a word and we call it making assumptions. Or we call it making false expectations. But the truth is, a lot of times what we're doing when we're making wrong expectations or assumptions, we're actually practicing what is called mind reading. See, the dictionary would describe mind reading as the ability to discern the thoughts of others without the normal means of communication. The ability to discern the thoughts of others without the normal means of communication. And the problem is with mind reading is often and usually it's very destructive. I remember my very first dispute I got with Becky after we were married. We had just been married one solid long week. We got married on a Saturday, and that next day we flew to the East Coast, and we had our honeymoon and the East Coast of the United States, and we got back to Colorado. We were living on a Friday, and we went to bed that night, and I got up the next morning very early like I'd been doing probably since the day I was born. And I was up early doing what I also normally do, is I was cleaning. Becky was in their bed, she was sleeping, I was up crazy early and I was cleaning the kitchen, I was cleaning the bathroom, I was cleaning the living room. I had lived in that apartment probably a month before we got married and kind of before the wedding, we had a lot of guests in and out, so the apartment was kind of messy, so I did what I love to do. I, I was cleaning and I thought, man, Becky's going to be so happy when she wakes up in the morning. Wake up to a clean apartment, she'll be happy, we'll, we'll probably go to Denver for breakfast, we'll go to Cherry Creek, our favorite place, and probably after that we'll drive to Boulder, our another favorite place, and spend the day there. We're going to have an awesome day. Instead, she wakes up and walks into the living room noticing I'm cleaning and everything looks great, and she's kind of upset. I can tell she's distraught. I'm thinking, what's the matter with her? I've been up for three hours cleaning this place. It looks amazing. And she's kind of nervous and antsy. And I'm like trying to figure out what's going on. And she's kind of figuring what's going on. We're having a conflict because we weren't communicating. Instead, she was reading into what I was doing. And I was reading into what she was doing. See, Becky thought, oh, if we get married, I'll be the housewife. And I'm this my job to clean. And I'm thinking... This is what I do every day, Saturday. I always clean. I've been doing this my adult life. I don't mind cleaning. I like doing that. I think I'm being a good husband. Becky's thinking she's being a bad wife. And we're having this dispute, and we're not even talking. But we're having a whole fight in our heads, and we're not even talking. Probably went on for about an hour, and finally we started saying, what's the matter? Oh, it's all based on expectations that you had and then I had. And we're finding this big difference going on between the two of us. We simply weren't communicating. We were trying to read into what the other person was thinking in their head. And we were completely wrong. We kind of do that a lot. And it can be actually very destructive. 
See, in the world of psychology, they will say that mind reading is when we try to infer what is going on in someone's mind without asking them to clarify. We try to infer what is going on in somebody else's mind without asking them to clarify. Now, at some level, we all do this. There's a healthy aspect of doing some mind reading or, or reading the room or making assumptions, kind of like if I was going to go visit somebody in the hospital and they said, hey, the person's having surgery, so, so come to the uh, surgery waiting room and, and could you wait there and, and, and for the person having surgery? And I, and I walk into the room and the family's there and I can, I can see the family's crying and they're upset. I'm quickly going to kind of probably read a few assumptions into what is going on with that family and that would dictate how I probably approach the family and how I react to the family. That's kind of a healthy part of making assumptions or doing a little reading of the room as you would call it because it helps us know how to approach people. But the problem that we have is when we never ask any questions to clarify. We keep going on with the assumptions that we're making and in our head. And we assume a whole different scenario is going on than what actually is happening. Now you might be thinking, why don't you just call it making assumptions? Why do you keep calling it mind reading? See, the reason I keep calling it mind reading is because I think it's a little shocking when you hear mind reading. I think sometimes we make a lot of assumptions and we think, ah, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I probably shouldn't do that so much. But when you call it mind reading, you react a little bit differently. I know that because I heard a message by Dave Lomas of the Reality Church Network talk about mind reading. And when he was talking about mind reading, I took a step back and like, whoa, I do that. I do that more than what I think I do. And that really is destructive. The fact that he called it mind reading kind of jarred me enough to say, you really need to pay attention to this. Because it's something that easily breaks down community and breaks down relationships way too quickly. So if you don't like this message and you don't like me calling it mind reading, then you can blame the Reality Church Network because that's where I got a lot of my teaching from. In fact, it was such a good message. A lot of what I'm going to say about mind reading and assumptions comes directly from him. It was a good message and it really, ever since I listened to that, I'm just so aware of when I read too much into a situation. It's been very helpful. So let's get started with what is the problem of mind reading. You could probably make a pretty big list of why it's destructive and why it can be negative, but I want to start with three things. See, the first thing that it does is that it, um, we falsely assume that we know what's going on in a situation when we really don't know. We might have a little bit of information and then we run with a bunch of assumptions. And then when we do that, it's very difficult for the other person because they're like, I don't understand how you're relating to me. It's very confusing to me. And this thing is driving me nuts. Weird thing about church, every week I come here and this thing should be just remember my ear. But every week something happens during the week. Same thing with that keyboard. During the week, that keyboard just reinvents itself. You have to come in, it's like... Let me spend the first half hour here trying to figure that thing out. So these are the big... Anyway. All right. Back to problem number three with assumptions. When we don't take the time to ask clarifying questions, our relationships are built on assumptions. And that's pretty destructive. 
And so as a result, mind reading is just very dangerous to relationships and it's very dangerous to community. Now, I do understand that sometimes God does give us a unique ability and it's called discernment to figure out what is going on in a situation without the normal means of communication. And that is a godly gift and God does do that. But I think sometimes we got to be careful too with the gift of discernment that we don't take the gift of discernment that God gives us and add a whole another story to it. We need to be very careful with the gift of discernment and be very careful when we read too much in a situation. The reason we need to is because the Bible addresses that behavior. And it's called the ninth commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 16, it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that's what happens when we get on that runaway train of making assumptions about a situation. You might say, well, I never told anybody. But if you keep telling yourself something about another person in their situation that's false, that goes against the ninth commandment. And that's exactly what we do when we get carried away with our assumptions. It's a common trap that we really need to avoid. See, at the end of our service last week, last week, if you were here, we ended our service by having a little congregational meeting on what's going on with a church. And Leslie asked me a very good question. She said, so what is the vision of Lake Effect Church right now? And I was caught a little off guard by her question because I thought we, the congregation was going to give us information instead of me giving information. But I was like, that's a good question. And when she asked me that question, I, I didn't want to give her the typical rote answer of, you know, Lake Effect Church was founded by the four pillars of know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. I didn't want to just kind of slide into our quick and easy answer of, you know, Lake Effect Church is a people devoted to Christ and his message to the world. I didn't want to just give the canned answer that you might expect. I want to give something deep and personal. I want to give something from my heart that talked about the mission of Lake Effect Church, especially as we have emerged from 19 or 18 months of COVID. What is the mission of Lake Effect Church and how has that been transforming over the past year and a half? So I had to stall for a minute as I was like thinking, what do I really want to say? So I stalled and said, Becky, get up there and say something. So Becky got up and shared something from her heart. And then I got up to follow her and I said two things. I said, number one, I want a church that is deeply committed to being open and honest and transparent. And the second thing I said is I desire and a vision for a church that is deeply committed to discipleship and spiritual formation. Those were the two things that I said is deeply part of the vision I have for this church. Open, honest, transparent, and committed to discipleship. Now, you could sit there and think, now, how come you didn't talk about missions? How come you didn't say anything about missions? Now, obviously, I didn't have a lot of time to give every single vision for the church. But I think if a church fails to have an open and honest environment and fails to really focus on spiritual formation, discipleship, you will never get to evangelism. You will never get to outreach. Because outreach and evangelism is a result of open and honest and being transformed by the word of God. And then those things naturally happen. The first thing that a church has to have is a culture where people can be open and honest and transparent. A culture where people can freely talk about what's going on in their life, what's going on in their life without fear of judgment. 
See, that is the goal for Lake Effect. That is the vision of Lake Effect Church. But what that talks about more than a goal, it talks about the culture of the church. It talks about the atmosphere of a church that needs to be a safe place so people can be vulnerable. And see, that culture is quickly eroded when mind reading enters into the culture or where a culture of assumptions enters in. Quickly, you will get rid of a culture that's open and honest and vulnerable. And the reason for that is because everybody has two big, serious needs in their life. There's more than two, but the two serious things that everybody needs is they need friends and they need honesty. And that's why community is so important, and that's why community has to be such an integral part of spiritual formation. And that's why as we're talking about spiritual formation, we are taking the time to look at community and really talk about it because it is essential to growing in your relationship with God. See, it's interesting, I've been saying this probably every week of this whole series, is that in the Bible, the language that the Bible uses to describe our new relationship as a Christian is it says we are adopted into the family of God. And when you're adopted in the family of God, God becomes your father and you get a bunch of different brothers and sisters, you get different siblings, you get a new inheritance and you get a new destiny and we are called to live together in this new family that's called the kingdom of God. And so many of us, we're so used to living outside of the kingdom of God and to live in the kingdom of God, we need to be transformed by God. And that is so much of what we are doing in the practicing of discipleship. But one of the biggest barriers to authentic community is honesty. If you want to move beyond superficial friendships, you need to be honest and vulnerable. And the truth is every single person has secrets. Every single person has things about themselves that they're trying to hide from other people. And hopefully, most of you got to the place that you're not hiding anything anymore. See, a lot of times we're hiding things about our behavior. There's things that maybe we've done in the past that are embarrassing that we don't want anybody to ever find out. Or maybe there's things about our behavior that maybe we haven't done those things, but we really would like to do those things. And we really would feel terrible if somebody found out what our desires really are. Or sometimes we have this fear of that we have a deficiency in our life. It might be a learning disability. It might be something else. And we don't want anybody else to figure that out. So we try to hide that from people. Or some of us struggle deeply with our appearance. We're not comfortable with how we look or how size we are. We try to hide that. Some of us are terribly embarrassed by our family of origin. Terribly embarrassed in the environment that we're raised and we don't want anybody to know about that. Some of us might be, everything on the list I just said might be a very difficult thing in your life. So we spend our entire life trying to hide these things trying to keep anybody else from finding those out. And you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden, it was really easy for them to be honest with God when there was no sin and there was no shame. But immediately when sin entered the garden, what did they do? They hid. And why did they hide? Because they thought they knew what God's response to them was going to be. They were hiding from God and they were assuming that they knew his response. And I think every single one of us has been doing that since the fall. We hide and we fear how God is going to respond to us. See, David is one of the most recognized, notorious sinners in the Bible. 
He was known for being a heart after God, but he's known after doing some big sins. But what distinguishes David is that he's known as a man of great repentance. David fell into some big sins, but David always found his way back to God through repentance. And one of David's biggest sins was the affair that he had with Bathsheba. And by the grace of God, through the prophet Nathan, God led David back to repentance. And in Psalm 51, David's describing that situation. In Psalm 51, verse 5 and 6, this, listen to what David says. This is so strategic. He says, For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Did you hear what David just said? He said, God, you never expected me to be perfect. In fact, you probably you anticipated that I wouldn't be perfect. God didn't expect us to be perfect. Instead, he desired for us to be honest. God's expectation was not that we would be perfect. His expectation is that we would be honest. That's one of the first guidelines that God gives to us, is that we would be open, that we would be honest, and that we would be transparent. He never expected us to be perfect. He didn't say that. He said, I want you to be honest. God's desire is always honesty for individuals. And when individuals come together to form a church, they still need to be honest. But somehow, it seems like some people, individuals, when they get together to form a church, sometimes they think, now we have to become perfect. We have to act perfect. We have to behave perfect. Well, it's good to try to strive for that. But God's goal is for us is to be honest in the midst of community. But instead of being honest, most of us put more effort into trying to pretend that we can be perfect. I think for some of us, we think it's easier to try to be perfect than it is to be honest. There's a reason why sometimes we avoid honesty. It's because, well, sometimes we don't want to face the consequences. Sometimes there is consequences for our actions. But sometimes we don't want to be honest because we don't want other people to mock us or to be critical of us or to judge us. We don't want to be too honest with people because we don't know how they're going to respond to us, especially if you're in a mind-reading culture when people don't ask questions. You don't want people to go in with a bunch of assumptions in their head. So instead, we're not going to be honest. We're going to protect ourselves. But in order to get the freedom that God has for us, we have to be people that are committed to the truth. That is why Jesus said in John 8, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's when you live in the truth of who Jesus is, who the word of God is, and you reflect your life to be honest, that you find the freedom that we all desire. See, someone once said, and the saying gets said a lot, is that you are only as sick as your secrets. Or someone, I think the way they say it is, you are only as healthy as your secrets. In other words, your secrets will always hold you back. Why? Because you don't have enough bandwidth to hide your secrets and to be healthy at the same time. You can only focus on one or the other. 
You can spend all your time trying to hide your secrets, hide your embarrassment, or you can take your energy and focus on being healthy and focus on following Christ and follow, focusing on spiritual formation and discipleship. We simply don't have enough bandwidth to do both of those. Now, the truth is, everybody doesn't need to know your story. Everybody doesn't need to know your secrets. But somebody does. Because you're never designed to carry those alone. Now, I know some people get scared and they think, I, I, I don't know about that. I don't want to tell anybody my story. Because the last thing I want is somebody to criticize me. I've already critical of myself enough. I don't need somebody adding to that. I don't, I, I don't need that. I have a hard enough time loving myself. I don't need to tell somebody my story and give them ammunition to hate me. So a lot of people do is they keep hiding. See, the truth is some people will mock you for your story. The truth is some people will ridicule you for your story. Some people will not be kind when they hear your testimony. But that is no reason to, that is not a reason to stop not being honest. It drives us to have a church culture where people can have a community where they can be honest and transparent. Holding back your secrets or holding back the things you're going to try to hide is destructive. That's why in Psalm 38, listen to what David says. This is so powerful. In Psalm 38, verse 4 and 5, David says, My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. He says, My wounds fester and stink because of my foolish sins. And then in verse 8, he says, I am exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. I'm exhausted and I'm completely crushed from trying to carry the secrets alone. That's just not a good way to live. And some of you have experienced that, the exhaustion of trying to hide things in your life. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live in a community where people can be authentic without being fearful that somebody's going to reject them. It was interesting, early this year, right in the midst of all this pandemic, a professor from Oxford University, Robin Dunbar, came out with a book that he called Friends. In this book is his decades of research on friendship. Some of you might know the man. He did a lot of research on group and group size and capacity of groups. So he came out with a book on Friends uh, earlier this year. It's an interesting book, and there's a lot of great things in this book, but three of the points that he makes in this book I think are so applicable to this message. Number one point that he has is he says, friendships are not just nice to have. They're essential for your health. This is decades of research. This isn't just his opinion. But friendships are not just nice, they're essential. A second point that he makes is that he says he claims that one of the biggest indicators for the health of a person is the quality of their friendships. In other words, his research shows that if you want to get healthy, you should start with friendships before changing your diet and exercise. His research says friendships contribute more to your health than diet or exercise. Interesting. I'm sure some people could debate that, but I think it's a fascinating research. And I think you kind of agree when you think about that for a while, how important it is to have good quality friendships in your life. 
Now, the third point that's really good from his book, he says that friendships require investments. Friendships will die fast if they're not maintained. I mean, you've got to put some work into your friendships. See, that's why a church needs to have a culture where people can find friends. Now, let me add something that's important when we talk about a church culture where people can be honest and vulnerable. That doesn't mean that the person that is listening has to have all the answers. Sometimes that gets a little nervous. Somebody tells me their problems. I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. That's why James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you might be healed. That's such a good scripture because it takes the pressure off the person that's listening to think they have to have the answers. No, I can pray. I might not have the answers, but I can pray. And that takes a lot of pressure off from us. Actually, it's a good reminder to listen more and to talk less. But see, our journey with Jesus doesn't just end with honesty. It's not like everything, if I'm just honest and humble and vulnerable, that, 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 that's all great. No, that's just the beginning of the journey. So we need to continue. That's why spiritual formation has to be connected so much to honesty and transparency. Because the beautiful process of understanding your sins and your secrets and exposing your sins and your secrets, it does expose what you really want, and that is a deeper relationship with God. And that is only gonna, you're only going to find that through the practices of spiritual formation and discipleship. Because the truth is, every single day, people are confessing their sins to other people, and they're not growing in the relationship with Jesus. Just because you confess a sin doesn't mean you'll necessarily grow in your relationship with Jesus. You have to have that component of discipleship that is connected to the culture of humility. See, in fact, in our culture right now, there's a lot of cultural cash for being sinful. It's kind of the new cool thing in our society, in our culture, to go against the biblical standards of living. See, when I was raising a kid, Christians and non-Christians all kind of agreed, you probably should live how the Bible says you should. Maybe you even weren't a churchgoer, you didn't really believe in God too much. Society kind of agreed, we're all going to live this way. Now in our culture, it's kind of popular to say, we're going to do exactly what the Bible says to not do. That's why we say we're living in a post-Christian culture. And for a lot of times, we have been lamenting over post-Christian culture. But actually, recently, I'm starting to see there's some benefits of living in a post-Christian culture. It's not all bad. Because when you live in a post-Christian culture, you start to see people that are really serious about their faith and really committed to their faith start to rise above the situations that are going on. You're starting to see the cream rise when people are seeing, experiencing a little bit more persecution for their faith. You're starting to see the people that are really committed to the relationship with Jesus, you're starting to see that rise. And that's a pretty good thing. Because you're starting to get a better picture of what is authentic Christianity. And that's a good thing. Because I think sometimes in a culture where everybody assumes each other person is Christian, sometimes you really don't see what it means to be an authentic Christian. So sometimes a post-Christian culture can actually be a catalyst to help us understand what does it really mean to follow Jesus. See, following Jesus is incredibly rewarding. I mean, Jesus promises us eternal life. He says you're not going to have to go to, you're not going to face punishment in hell. He promises us that he will serve us. Jesus said, Jesus said, I came to serve you. Jesus promised us an abundant life. 
He had promised us rest. He promised that he would give us grace, that he would give us peace, that he'd give us forgiveness, and the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes in our attempt to fill more seats in church, we have told people all of these benefits about being a Christian, and we invited them to these benefits, but we never told them actually what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes we leave that part of the equation out, and I think now in this culture, this post-Christian culture, people are seeing the necessity more of what does it actually mean to follow Jesus. See, I love this quote from this one historian. This one historian writes, he says, in the first centuries of Christianity, you remember those first centuries of Christianity, when you read in the book of Acts, that thousands of people would join the church overnight, and you see the church growth. And what this man says, he says, in that first century of churches, he said churches were actually hard to enter. Why? He says churches didn't grow because of their cultural accessibility. They grew because they required commitment to an unpopular God who didn't require people to perform cultic acts accordingly. But instead, he equipped them to live in a way that was richly unconventional. That's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus, to live a life that is richly unconventional. That's not easy. That's actually difficult. I think sometimes we forget that the man that we are following was killed for the same faith that we have. That's a difficult path to follow. See, the Bible tells us that we need to deny ourselves. That's a hard thing to do. It's not easy to deny yourself. That's why it's called denying yourself. Paul goes on in the book of Philippians and he says, we need to even be obedient to Christ to the point of death. That's not easy either. That's pretty serious. The Bible tells us that we will be subject to persecution. The Bible tells us that we might have to give up family and friends for the gospel. The Bible tells us that we might have to give up our finances for the gospel. It tells us that we need to bear each other's bur burdens. It tells us that we need to pursue unity, and the list goes on. See, following Jesus is actually for the very serious. It's for people who are committed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, there is a time for searching. There is a time to wonder about if, if this is true. It's a time to search, and that's okay. You don't want anybody who's trying to figure out to be a follower of Jesus that they want to and they have questions. That's great. You need that opportunity. But for people who say that they are followers of Jesus, it's serious. It's very serious. That's why we need a community to live with that's open and honest. We can be open and honest we can be open and honest with because it's hard to do. And along the way, you're going to get discouraged. And along the way, you will get frustrated because it's a hard life that Jesus is calling us to. So he said, I want to make sure you have friends. I want you to have a community that you can do this with. And that's why community is so very important. And it's important that we really address expectations that we put on other people or false assumptions that we make on other people. It's important that we address that we do when we do mind reading with other people because it can destroy a relationship in seconds when you assume what's going on with a person but you don't know. 
But community is not the only place that we have a problem with mind reading or assumptions. We also have that in our relationship with God. We also have that in our relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we assume that Jesus is going to do things that he never was planning on doing. And we can be very discouraged when he doesn't meet our expectations. I think it's very important that we remember the fact that God is never going to meet our expectations. He's not going to do what we want him to do when we want him to do it and how we want him to do it in our timeline. God never works that way. Instead, we can expect God to move beyond our expectations. God will never do what we expect. He always goes beyond our expectations, and he does more than we could ask for or hope for or we could imagine. That doesn't, make, that doesn't mean that's easy, though. That's why Jesus spent so much time telling us to trust him. That's why the Bible spends so much time saying, do not fear. Because it's hard at times when you don't think God is meeting your expectations. I love that story Donna read for us in the beginning of service from Mark 5. Great story of two people who go to Jesus with their expectations. We have Jairus who goes to Jesus. <clears throat> I need a drink. We have Jairus who goes to Jesus with his expectations, and we have the woman with the issue of blood who goes to Jesus with her expectations. Jairus goes and he expects Jesus to come to his house to pray for his daughter that is very sick, and she would get well. And Jairus has a strategy. Jesus, you come to my house, and you pray for her. Jesus could have prayed right there on the street for her. He didn't have to go to her house, but that's what he wanted. So Jesus said, sure, fine. And then the woman, she came to Jesus for healing, but she had her own strategy. She was just going to sneak behind Jesus, touch the bottom of his robe, get healed, and then go back home. She really didn't want a relationship with Jesus. She really didn't want long-term commitment with Jesus. She simply wanted to get healed. It's kind of, you kind of read the text, and it does sound like Jesus was her last resort. It said she tried every other option, and she spent a whole lot of money trying to get healed, and the last thing she did was she goes to Jesus to get healed. So she's, her strategy is, I'll touch the end of his garment, I'll get healed, then I'll go back home. She kind of sounds like a lot of people in our American culture. You want the benefits of a relationship with Christ, but you really don't want the relationship with Christ. And so what she does is she goes up to Jesus and she touches the end of his garments and she is healed. She got exactly what she wanted. And she's on her way to leave Jesus and to go back home. And what does he do? He says, hey, somebody touched me. And the disciples are all like, yeah, everybody touched you. It's crowded in this room. This lady's probably sweating going, oh no. And he calls her out and she goes before Jesus on her knees and says, yeah, I was the one who touched you. See, that's such an interesting story. She came for a healing. That's what she thought she needed. 
But what Jesus gave her was a relationship. That's what she really needed. Yeah, the healing, that was nice. But what she needed was the relationship with Jesus. That would transform her life. And not only did Jesus give her a relationship, but he said to her, okay, I want other people to know your testimony. That was a controversial testimony that that woman had because of the issue of blood and uncleanliness at the time. But Jesus said, no, he called her forward and said, I want other people to know what's going on here. And thousands of years later, we are reading this woman's testimony and it is transforming our life. That's the power of, of testimony. And that's the power of all of your testimony that you have is that it transforms other people's lives when they hear it. It's interesting, when we were at the prayer garage, we spent so much time praying that God would set us up with other people to share our story of what God has done in our life because that is transformation. It's such a beautiful story. This woman thought she just needed to be healed and she could go back home, but God didn't meet, meet her expectation. He went beyond her expectation and gave her a relationship. It's the same thing we see with Jairus. He thought, all I need is Jesus. You come to my house and you're going to pray for my daughter and she'll get well. That's all I need. Thank you very much. And while Jesus is attending to the commotion in the streets that's busy and crowded, what happens? This man's daughter died. And it's interesting what Jairus' friends said to him. They said, hey, your daughter's dead. There's no, there's no use troubling the teacher anymore. I think we all know what that feels like. Say, Jesus, you didn't answer my prayer request. And we think, there's no use troubling Jesus anymore. How many of you have experienced that when your prayer request isn't answered how you expected? So you hear the voice of that friend that says, there's no use troubling the teacher anymore. That happens easily. But, again, Jairus didn't get what he expected. He got beyond what he ever could expect or imagine to hope for. See, what Jairus got was a resurrection. That beats a healing. He got a resurrection. Healings are nice. But we need a resurrection. Because the resurrection gives you the power of God. And if we are going to live this unconventional life, we need resurrection power in our life. A healing is great. But we need the relationship with Jesus. And we need the resurrection power in our life if we are going to live this unconventional life. That's the power of God to go beyond what we could expect or what we could hope for or what you could imagine. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but Jack, they still got the healing. The woman was healed. The daughter was healed. They got healing and they got resurrection and they got relationship. And some of you might feel like, I still think get the healing. And I really don't have a great, great answer for that. Beside the fact that we all know that maybe you don't need it yet. But you get what you need. And God always moves beyond what you could expect or imagine or hope for. You can always expect a relationship with Jesus. And you can always expect resurrection power with Jesus. That's what he freely will give to us all the time. And that is what gives us the power and the ability to live in this world that is completely unconventional. That's how we can live in a world when the Bible says to deny yourself. Deny yourself? How do you do that? I really want to do that. You do that through relationship with Jesus. You do that with resurrection power. How do I give up myself to the point of death? Through relationship and resurrection power. How do I give up things that God might call me to give up for the sake of the gospel? Through relationship with Jesus and resurrection power. That's what we need. And the enemy wants to come against us with assumptions to get us off track. And we need to remember as we're going through again a tricky time in the world and our culture that we, all we need to survive is a relationship with Jesus and resurrection power. So let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for bringing us here. And I thank you, Lord, for such a good reminder in Mark 5 that we can have every assumption in the world and you always go beyond our assumptions and our expectations and you give us what we truly need. And that is a relationship, and that's resurrection power. So God, I pray that for each person here today, Lord. I know some of us, we're weary. Some of us feel like we've, we've heard um, Jairus' friends over and over again say, why even bother Jesus anymore? Lord, that's the voice of the enemy. Lord, would you give us just a new capacity to follow in the midst of when things are difficult and hard? God, I pray right now, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that every person that's listening to me in this room or online or maybe later in the week by a podcast, that you would give them new hope, that you would give them new comfort, that you'd give them new joy, that you would give them the ability to do things that they can't do on their own. And that's the gift of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on each person that's listening to me and equip them with a new strength. Lord, a lot of us are weary and we feel like we're just waiting for you to do something. But God, you've already given us everything that we need. Lord, help us to see the relationship and the resurrection power for what it is. You know, we love the story of Jairus and we love to see what God did with the resurrection. But before any resurrection, there's a death. And that's hard. That was hard for Jairus that day. Walking from seeing a woman healed and his own daughter died. 
That's a long walk home. And some of you are on that walk right now. And that's a difficult place to be. But what the beautiful part of this story is even though the friend said, don't bother Jesus anymore. Jesus walked with Jairus. until he got the resurrection. Jesus walks with us until the resurrection happens. Some of you are waiting for a resurrection. And that's hard. But Jesus is walking with you. Giving you the relationship and given you the resurrection power. So God, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what is happening or what we're going through, that your rod and your staff are with us to give us comfort. That you walk with us as we wait for the resurrection power. As we wait to see what you're going to do. That's a tough place to be in. But Lord, help us to be forward thinkers, to think about the resurrection that is coming. So may the Lord bless each one of you. May the Lord protect each one of you. May the Lord smile upon you. May the God be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor. And may God give all of you his peace that passes understanding. May you leave here today in the joy of the Lord. May you believe here today in the confidence that God will go beyond meeting your expectations. May you leave here today filled with anticipation and faith that the Good Shepherd is walking with you. May you all go in peace and confidence and joy. God bless you all. Thank you for being here and have a wonderful week.